Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, the latest issues tied to cannabis and the latest news in technology. BIV has launched BIV Talks, a series of editorially driven events. They feature panels of experts and analysts who weigh in on some of the most salient, relevant, hottest topics. For example, our first event is on surviving the real estate slump here in Greater Vancouver. That one is coming up on March 26th. Our second event on March 28th looks at the 5G dilemma. You won't want to miss these. You can register now and get more information over at BIV.com events. We hope to see you there. We're looking at supply, demand, and taxation in the cannabis industry today with Dan Sutton, CEO of Tantalus Labs. Dan, thanks for coming back on. Glad to be here. Let's start with the demand piece of this. Stats Canada has reported that around 15% of Canadians have consumed cannabis post-legalization. I'm curious to get your thoughts on whether you think this accurately captures the consumption market. It's interesting because right now we're limited in our use cases. Mm. We're asking people to buy flowered cannabis or pre-rolled joints, grind it up, roll it up, and smoke it. And uh, Canada has always been a pretty avid uh, cannabis use country. It seems as though our stats are generally a little bit higher, but I personally am of the belief that with a new slate of products coming out in October uh, of this year, or hopefully sometime around then, the the legislation will be coming through in October, we're going to see an ability for people to use things like vaporizers, low-dose edibles, perhaps even beverages, uh, and that may very well diversify the accessibility of cannabis beyond people who want to grind it up and smoke it. Do you think those new lines of products will appeal to more Canadians than what we're seeing already consume sort of a restricted number of products? Well, I think the last stats that I saw are probably 60 to 70% of adult Canadians consume alcohol. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a pretty high number. It's obviously been sort of socially entrenched over the, the course of maybe thousands of years. And so perhaps that is the sort of upper end of the target market for cannabis. If, mm-hmm. if we say if those many people you know, enjoy uh, altering their mood, altering their mind state uh, to be able to go out and socialize or do whatever else they, they do. I think we're going to see a substantial increase in the size of the, the cannabis market in Canada for sure. One of the things that jumped out at me is that the level of consumption here, according to StatsCan, was basically unchanged pre-legalization and post-legalization. Obviously, there are some challenges in getting stats around this, but that that wave of demand that some people were predicting hadn't quite materialized or it hasn't quite materialized. What do you attribute that to? Is it just the product line or are there some other issues at play? Um, Well, yes. As you say, a bit statistically tricky to get people to (laughs) self-report their cannabis use, even in a legal market. Um, But also, you know, there are other issues that affect people's ability to access cannabis. Mm. Uh, In most provinces, maybe save Alberta and and a bit of uh, the Maritimes, we don't really have convenient access to, to legal regulated cannabis today. Certainly in British Columbia, if you want to buy legal cannabis, there's a, a small handful of stores, you know, they go up to 13 or 14. Otherwise, you're buying online. And these are very different use cases from how people have traditionally consumed cannabis. So I think it won't be a tidal wave of new demand. I think it'll be slowly and incrementally as we see more and more people experimenting with cannabis, finding, you know, applications that work in their lives. But all Ultimately, uh, the the expansion of users in in cannabis in Canada is is, is good for all of us in the context of, of 
regulated tax dollars uh, and also the growth of the industry. I think some people would have been surprised to learn that just over 15% of British Columbians say they have consumed cannabis over the last three months or so, which is the third lowest rate in Canada. We're ahead of only Quebec and Manitoba. Is it because of that retail landscape and some of, some of the accessibility challenges? Uh, it could also be data bias, and it's tough to sort of get those yeah. samples. Really, really early days. Like the la- the last statistics uh, that I saw were sort of you know t- BC was probably in this sort of eighteen to twenty two percent range, which oh, is wow. exceptional. You know, even on a global scale. Um, but then we've got a bunch of different kinds of use cases. We've got very heavy users. We've got occasional users. We've got a diversity of different uh, you know potential modalities of, of how people are deriving benefit from this product. So I think time will tell. We'll, we'll see more and uh, hopefully the, the stats can be more accurate than calling people up on the phone and asking if they use cannabis. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm looking forward to five or 10 years out when we've had a decade worth of data. That'll be, I think, more telling about sort of how we started and how it evolves. Absolutely. One of the things, too, that I'd like to pick up on, it kind of moves our conversation into the taxation piece, but a lot of people, most Canadians care about safety and quality. I think that's a given. But a lot of them, 38% listed price is the top reason for whether they consume cannabis, I imagine, legally, or whether they perhaps go to the black market. How big of an issue does this remain when it comes to taking market share away from the illegal space? Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, <clears throat> we see it as there, there are a few different classes of users. There's certainly price sensitive users and those users likely are going to be better served by the black market if they do have convenient access to that black market. And it's simply because there will always be a disincentive associated with tax. You know, the, a dollar per gram excise tax is, is certainly sizable. Uh, and then a bunch of other carrying costs that come with security, that come with quality assurance, that come with distribution obligations. The legal market is going to have a very difficult time competing on price, especially in an environment where the price of black market cannabis has come down substantially over the last five years. So then there's this other sort of quality sensitive segment. <clears throat> I'm surprised that the numbers are that high on people that sell report price as being a sort of key driver uh, because there are a lot of individuals who consume cannabis and and they want something to write home about. They want a story that they can tell. In in the case of Tantalus Labs, it seems that the, the people that prefer our products, they love to talk about the sustainability of cannabis. They love to talk about the purity of inputs that come with sunlight and recaptured rainwater. They love to talk about unique genetics and phenotypes and you know, terpenography and all these interesting sort of nerdy little details uh, that cannabis geeks like me like to nerd out on. <laughs> um, so there, there will definitely need to be, you know, probably the majority of the market will be budget priced cannabis. And that relies on sort of economies of scale and a variety of other industrial drivers of cost reduction. But I think we need to acknowledge that it's going to be very difficult for those producers to compete on price as long as there is even a shred of taxation, which the black market does not have to pay. Is there still enough room to tell the story like you did about, say, where your cannabis comes from within the marketing regulations that we have? Absolutely. So locality, you know, the way cannabis is grown, education about agriculture and cultivation systems, these are mediums that Tantalus Labs for one thrives in we really like talking about you know how we do greenhouse agriculture and that is uh within the regs and within the obligations uh, mm-hmm. of our marketing restrictions it's just when you come to sort of try to make those stories adventurous or sexy or super <laughs> cool yeah uh, that's when you run into trouble 
Tilray is one of a, a number of industry players that is asking for a bit of a reprieve when it comes to taxation on gross revenues. And they actually go so far as arguing that it creates a toxic environment for investment. So we, we often look at this from the user perspective or consumer perspective, but have you seen it? Is, is it a really challenging investment environment to kind of get this industry going? <laughs> well, Tilray went public on the NASDAQ two or three <laughs> months ago, and I think their market cap is in the billions and billions. So not sure how much trouble they've had getting investing. Uh, but you know that's that's going to be an ongoing conversation, and and it's perhaps you know some obligation of of Tilray and, and similar companies to argue on behalf of their shareholders to mm-hmm. minimize taxation over time. Uh, whereas I, I'm sort of in the middle of it. I, I believe that you know cannabis companies paying their taxes is going to be an essential part of the sort of ongoing social progress argument. Uh, in Colorado, they called it pot for potholes or pot for potholes, and uh, you know. I, I think that we, we're going to have to ongoing, we're going to have to balance the sort of negative effects of overtaxation with uh, the opportunities that come with, with paying our taxes. But maybe I'm just too Canadian and, and Tilray is an American company, but I'm happy <laughs> to pay my taxes. Uh, we, we definitely want to be seen to be making our contribution. I like pot for potholes because it connects the power of this industry and taxation revenue to perhaps social programs or things that we need in society. We were talking before we hit the air about how this is maybe still seen as a a sin tax or a sin industry. How much further do we have to go before this industry is fully embraced? Yeah, I think it's it's going to be a ways. I mean, for justifiable reasons, cannabis companies come off a bit suspect. There are some that are sort of pinstripe suits and big stock stories, and, and that's kind of a hard pill to swallow for some people. And then there's some that are sort of, you know, legacy cannabis that's that's difficult to wrap our heads around while removing it from sort of bikers and gangs and things like that. So there, there's a lot of social stigma around cannabis. And for those of us in the sort of agricultural startup realm, we're trying our best to just be good corporate citizens and give people a track record that they can rely on. Uh, but nonetheless, in, in British Columbia, we have seen a substantial lack of facilitation. It's just been an absence of facilitation, I would say. It's not that the, the government's explicitly trying to get in cannabis companies' ways, but they're making policy and initiatives that are, are not necessarily encouraging the industry to thrive. Mm. And I think that that's something we got to wrap our heads around as British Columbians, you know, especially in, in the legislature and at a policymaking level is, do we want this industry to thrive? Do we actually want it to succeed? And if we do, it needs to be more than just, you know, talk and, and language and colorful language about how great it's going to be when we're all employed by cannabis and paying our cannabis tax and all, all of that, and et cetera. I think we actually need to see, uh, you know, economic impact analysis, looking out over over months and years and say, wow, this is really going to be a drastic part uh, of our, of our especially taxes in provincial coffers. So what can we do to really get the diversity of this, of this industry increased? You know, I think right now, there may be 20 or 30 LPs in British Columbia. We, we need to see hundreds and hundreds. And then diversity of retail endpoints as well is, I think, a huge thing that the government can be facilitating right now. We've got 15 stores. Alberta has 75. It's been time to put the gas pedal down and start building some more of these outlets. Uh, and and that will allow you know private participation, public participation. Uh, we've got a long way to go. Is it a barrier at all that we have a variety of municipalities, even closely within one region, coming up with their own bylaws, some completely restricting cannabis in that industry, some being a little more open to it? Is that a, is that a challenge, having that patchwork? 
Absolutely. And I mean, municipalities are interesting because they wield a disproportionate amount of power and they're often the least scrutinized level of government. Mm. So we have municipalities that are building bylaws in the ethos of sort of restrictive cannabis policy from five or 10 years ago. And in many cases, I just don't think that they have the information to make a rational choice. Nobody has made the case that they can see massive job creation, increased tax revenues, et cetera, et cetera. And so on that front, I really think it's important for the provincial government to make that case, to articulate to municipalities, these are the values, these are the potential costs, these are, this is how the, the province wants to facilitate, and this is what the province expects of the municipalities. Uh, and we haven't seen much or any of that yet, unfortunately. And I think that there are definitely some municipalities that are, are taking overly restrictive and, and in some cases, uh, indefensible actions against the cannabis industry. BC has been pretty quiet in terms of its forecasts for tax revenue when it comes to cannabis, but it looks like they're looking at $68 million over three years as their share of the federal excise tax, as opposed to $200 million over three years, which was the original estimate. Where's the money? <laughs> <laughs> We've just seen really weak sales in British Columbia. Um, I made a comment on this in, in the Vancouver Sun last week. It, it's a combination of a lack of retail endpoints uh, and just a, 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 an easy access to the alternative to black market cannabis. In British Columbia, we're up against a unique challenge because the illicit market is just so deeply entrenched. And most people, even in metropolitan cities and certainly in small town BC, have relatively easy access to a friend or neighbor that cultivates cannabis. So it's going to be a unique struggle. But the first thing we need is stores. If we don't have the ability for users to conveniently walk into a location and access a diversity of different cannabis products from a diversity of different um, producers, there's really no way that we can we can even take a swing at the, the black market with e-commerce only. I know it's happening. I know it's sort of one foot in front of the other. Um, but what can we do to streamline the bureaucracy associated with these new applicants, many of whom are small business operators and entrepreneurs that want to be in this business? Uh, how can we how can we get to that sort of 200, 300 stores in this province? So, uh, we, we I think, do we have 900 alcohol stores or 800? There's something really substantial. A lot. <laughs> so yeah, let's let's get a few hundred cannabis stores, especially in the major metropolitan areas, and, uh, and we'll go from there. Nationally, of course, we're still taxing medical marijuana and get quite a bit of revenue off of that part of the industry, but we don't tax other prescription medicines. Is this hypocritical? Absolutely. I mean, everyone in the cannabis industry is unified on this front. Don't tax medicine. It's We don't tax any other medicines across Canada. If you're using the argument that, okay, a, a, a therapeutic use of cannabis can be somehow faked with a physician. I mean, these are, these are medical doctors. These are nurse practitioners that are making these judgment calls. Then you're basically making the argument that you can fake all of those different ailments for, for pharmaceutical use as well. And I think that that's the government's primary reason, the federal government's primary reason for wanting to tax medication, tax cannabis, is that they see that if they didn't tax it, okay, people would just abuse the medical system. Well, we have the checks and balances in place. The doctors are the ones making this judgment call if people are, you know, a viable therapeutic user of cannabis. So I think it's kind of a weak argument. Um, but I think that battle is sort of slowly and steadily getting won. We've got a bunch of great advocates with CFAM and, and Jonathan, Jonathan Zaid. And I just really hope that uh, we sort of wake up and start paying attention to the reality of these oftentimes, you know, uh, economically suppressed Canadians that, that need access to, to their medicine. I wonder if part of it is just it's, it's cannabis and people think, oh, well, you just use it for a medicinal purpose. It's the exact same product. 
it's essentially the same, whereas they don't necessarily realize all of the checks and balances that are in place, the regulations, the standards. Does it might might it just take some time and education before we kind of realize, okay, we're going to treat this form of cannabis as a separate product and not tax it, for example? I hope so. I, I think that the sort of it takes time and education piece is is not really fully accurate because the you know Health Canada that's writing these regs and and the task force that advised and and are sort of move, moving forward through through the different different layers of legislation, Canada is pretty well educated on cannabis at this point. Like we sort of know what's going on, and it's it's just really a, a question of a critical mass. I think of of policymakers that want to see medical cannabis have have easier access. And are willing to give up the tax revenue, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> There'll be lots of tax revenue in recreational cannabis, uh, fully, fully justified there. On this final point, we're a week away from a federal budget. Is there anything from an industry perspective you're perhaps hoping to see? That's a great question. And I think I'm going to have to defer it until we see the budget and make a comment at that point. Fair enough. Dan, it's always a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Haley. It's Dan Sutton, CEO of Tantalus Labs. It's time now for our weekly tech panel. Joining me in studio, Ali Pordad, CEO of Progressa, and on the line in Vancouver, Linda Fawkes, founder and CEO of Glue Technology Society. Thank you both for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. We spoke last week about Tesla. We're picking up that thread, and it's a good thing we waited a week because last week Tesla announced they're closing their retail footprint, rolling it back. This week, Ali, Tesla has said <laughs> that, well, that's not entirely the case. They'll be keeping some stores open. You made a comment last week that maybe they were too aggressive in their retail expansion. We're rolling it back. Were they too aggressive in their rollback? And so now they're changing <laughs> their tune. What's going on? Chaos. Chaos from Tesla. Uh, you know, I, 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 you can't help but uh, feel bad for for their you know for their employees because uh, they are getting a lot of mixed messages right now. Uh, typically, when companies are sending mixed messages, they, it, it actually is coming right from the leadership level. Like there's mixed conversations happening at the leadership level, and those things are just getting communicated in real time. I, I think for the sake of transparency, but they're getting they're getting communicated too quickly. And in the case of Tesla, it sounds like they still have some. Uh, you know, some hard conversations ahead of them. Uh, it sounds like you know, there, there are stores that perform quite well relative to other stores. I, I mean, it's obvious you have Tesla locations that are uh, that are very well positioned relative to others, and you have some that are in the middle of nowhere and and don't do well. And this is this is all data that they track quite uh, quite carefully. And so I think the, the sort of the logical step is to start uh, start their cost cutting measures where the stores are just not performing, and then work their way from there. And you know, they have to do that. They still need these uh, these cars to move, and the public is used to going into the stores now and and buying them. Mm -hmm. Linda, we also talked last week a bit about perhaps the skepticism of having a strictly e-commerce model and the ability of Tesla to ship you a Tesla vehicle in 24 hours or 48 hours or whatever they promised. Could that be at play here too? Maybe there's there's still some value in having retail storefronts? Well, I'm not sure. You know, that announcement last week was they're going to cut back all their retail stores and you're going to have to buy a car only through the app. And by the way, we're coming out with the $35,000 car everybody's been waiting for. I wonder if the sales didn't uptick after that announcement that yeah. all we talked about was the retail closure. So maybe they're saying, Ike, uh, we need to backtrack and give these these consumers, by the way, the $35,000 price point consumers are a traditional car consumer. 
and they are used to going into retail stores or car showrooms to see the cars they're purchasing. But if any company can make an app-based automobile purchase work, it's going to be Tesla. They've got the user base who's technically savvy and a desire to buy their cars kind of at all costs. Um, They're a technology company before a car company, sometimes to their peril. So I think it's going to happen. I think they can make it happen. And when we read about what uh, Mr. Musk said in his latest blog post, is you're actually going to be walking into a Tesla retail store if you can find one. Um, And having the pared down employee staff help you use the app to buy the car. So so they're pushing hard towards app centric. And I think that they'll get there. He he actually he actually took it a little bit even a step further and announced that they're going to put cars in some of their stores. Like inventory, mm. which was uh, which is something that uh, is is almost taking it taking it to the other extreme because you know their whole their whole uh, you know mantra was that you'd be ordering a car and that it would uh, you know it'd come in, in in due course, but now they're actually planning you know he's some of these stores that are I guess higher performing stores he's planning on leaving inventory in the stores so you'll be able to come into the store now uh, order your Tesla and actually drive out with it which you know, is uh, is almost the other extreme uh, from from their initial uh, rollout strategy. Are they starting to yeah, become exactly. more of a car company, more of a traditional car company? Is there some value in that, Ali, at this stage in, in Tesla's evolution? I think they're realizing that, uh, you know, there's a lot to building and rolling out cars, manufacturing cars and distributing cars. I mean, there there's uh, serious logistical problems in their supply chain right now. I'm, we're seeing all, I'm, you know, some of the articles I was reading over the weekend uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, you have customer complaints now on like customer service. People are starting to get wind of, you know, yeah, the car is, the car is great, but the service was not, you mm. know, and, and the car took me, the car took too long to deliver, or I had problems with, well, I had problems with the, uh, with the delivery. So, you know, these are things that are sort of table stakes for car companies. You don't, we don't often talk about them because if you want to get a car, you just go to the lot, you buy a car and you drive off, drive off the lot. But these are new, real new logistical issues that Tesla has created because of the way they do business. That's a good point. Yeah, but yeah, you know, Linda. When we, yeah, when we look at how they're getting down to this $35,000 price point as well, they're doing it by cost cutting in areas other car companies aren't currently. So if they could manage this, online only push, uh, they could uh, get to Mr. Musk's goal of a really cheap, fantastic electric car, $35,000 price point being his first entry there. So um, I can see why they're pushing hard. And I, I, I believe they'll make it. It's just going to be a bumpy road as they, as they filter away from retail and more towards online. Yeah, I think, I think that argument, it'll be interesting to see how that argument plays out over time. You know, it, to the extent that they have uh, they shut down all of their non-performing stores, i.e., stores that they're just simply losing money on. Uh, I don't know that they'll ever have to take it all the way down to having no stores. I mean, if the stores are sort of providing positive unit economics for them, uh, at, you know, at, on a on a car by car basis, then there's really no reason to, uh, you know, to uh, to get rid of that presence. If you know, it's not like uh, uh, you know, Mercedes doesn't have a car dealership or Audi doesn't have a car dealership. You, you know, people are used to going and and shopping for their cars in person. Uh, is there going to be a whole uh, range of millennials that are, are probably going to buy their car online? Absolutely. But Tesla ge- is not gearing their car just to one demographic. And, and even at a $35,000 price point, um, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to appeal to a wide range. 
Mm-hmm. Do, do, do you think we're looking here at the books versus remember when obviously we remember when there were bookstores and then Amazon came in and said, no, you're going to buy books only online. Uh, do you think that we're seeing that kind of um, cultural disrupt when we imagine purchasing cars um, only online versus showroom? Is it the same kind of disruption? Could be. Yeah, we might be. We might be at the forefront of it right now. I wonder, too, if we go 10, 20, 30 years into the future, are we going to be buying and owning cars? We've talked about that on this panel as well. That could be another major disruption, in which case it changes the whole economics of this. Ali, might we have Tesla fleets roaming the city as opposed to owning $35,000 mass market cars? Uh, I just I just can't see Tesla in 20 or 30 years from now. For some reason, it, to me, it, it, this doesn't have the the long-term, there's not a, like a long-term viability play mm. here. It just, it doesn't seem, it seems like they're, they're sort of living on the edge financially. And I don't think that's, uh, that's a good recipe for long-term success. I think that uh, companies like Volkswagen, Audi, Mercedes, uh, you know, Ford, there's, there's a, a, a large number of, uh, of car producers out there that are moving into the uh, electric car space and are starting to come out with fleets, over the course of the next couple of years, um, I think Audi's already started or Volkswagen has already started. And, uh, and so I would expect those companies that in 10, 20, 30 years to, to survive the long haul. And uh, to answer your question, probably it'll all be autonomous cars. Hmm. Well, it's possible, Linda, that Tesla's purpose was to change the nature of the conversation. It certainly led this movement significantly, and they're still struggling to get their cars on the roads, while other traditional car companies, as Ali pointed out, have been rolling out their versions. Maybe that was Tesla's purpose. Maybe. Um, and maybe to get us all thinking electric is sexy and let's, let's buy into it. They, they certainly have done that because nobody before them managed to make anybody ever want to drive an electric car uh, before Tesla. So that's a good thing. Um, but when we look at what companies like Lyft are doing, going off of last week's conversation, the goal from companies like that is nobody owns a car. This yep. is all just a big autonomous fleet of vehicles we grab when we need. And I can tell you from the 20-somethings I talked to, Purchasing a car is not even close to on their radar screen. This this car sharing, uh, car co-op mentality is something they all seem to be pretty comfortable with. Yeah, I think if you asked Elon today what his initial intentions were when he first started Tesla many, many years ago, I think he would say that it was more a cultural shift or a paradigm shift that he was trying to achieve than than the car, you know, the success of the car itself. Uh, I, I I think he would tell you that a thousand times over, and I mean I I think he proved it when he released all his patents. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, last month I I think he released all Tesla's patents to the public, uh, or it was some variation of them. So I, I mean, to me that tells you it, he wasn't in it for the success of Tesla; he was in it to change the world. Hmm. Yeah, and today they just announced Semi, the uh, electric semi trailer um, truck that has just been announced. So that that you know, transforming transportation towards electric power is is a pretty awesome legacy for a, a guy who is a technology guy and not a car guy. Yeah, well put. You know, I think some very important people are listening to our podcast because all the <laughs> topics we've been talking about for a year, two years, we have a lot to talk about them this week. There's a digital authority that's kind of the recommendation of a House of Lords committee in the UK. They're saying that there needs to be some kind of super regulatory authority or body to plug gaps in regulation when it comes to digital tech companies, when it comes to privacy. 
Ali, you mentioned that if we're going to see something like this, we would see it in Europe. That, that was true. <laughs> Someone's listening to us. <laughs> Do you think this is very Almost preliminary? Europe. Almost Europe. Yeah, well, <laughs> I guess we'll see. That's another story. Right. <laughs> Maybe not a tech story exactly, uh, but we'll see about that. But they have, they have 10 commandments and 10 rules generally. Nothing surprising here. Openness, no. democracy, privacy. Linda, is this a good first step or does it kind of repeat everything we've been talking about around the world over the last number of years? I think it's a good first step. I think Sir Tim Berners-Lee, the guy who started this all 30 years ago with the first modern web page uh, came out late last year saying we need to change this. So the web of the last 30 years is not how I envisioned it. It's not why I gave you guys all this resource code to to create these massive businesses. Uh, let's go 30 years into the future and make it right. And I think that the, the Lord's Committee has done a good job of highlighting the obvious points. And I think the EU is having great conversations around like the way they put it, taking the digital scalpel to the data that is being released and not necessarily, you know, breaking up the companies themselves like Google and Facebook, but let's, you know, pare down what data they're allowed to have. So this is a great conversation. I think that um, we need government regulation to take care of the vulnerable and that we have seen after all of these fails over the last couple of years from the tech companies, they're not going to do this themselves. So it's, time to step up. Consumers are not going to take care of their own privacy. They're not going to figure out what data is being vacuumed up and protect themselves. We've seen that time and again. So somebody needs to step up or things are going to get bad fast. And we, yeah, we were talking about the, uh, this point last week as well. And I'll reiterate it today because it actually I saw it in the article. So I mean, definitely they're listening to us here. <laughs> uh, but the, the, the real the real uh, gist of it is that these tech companies are sitting on so much cash now. And they're growing so quickly that they're actually able to identify smaller and up and coming tech companies and acquire them before they become big. Yes. And so that just it sets the stage for a significant amount of problems, which we're experiencing today with Facebook, WhatsApp, and Instagram. We're experiencing it with Amazon and its large conglomerate of holdings. Uh, so, you know, this is, this is uh, the, the, those uh, 10 items I think they had listed uh, in, in this uh, proposed authority make a whole lot of sense. Uh, but you have to wonder about the practical applications because a lot of these are large public companies. A lot of them are American companies. How do you uh, how to how do you uh, you know actually administer this body and uh, uh, and oversee these companies? It, maybe it's a United Nations uh, uh, initiative that they could maybe it could fall it could fall under a United Nations initiative. That to me that sort of fits a little bit, uh, but it would be hard. It's hard for me to see a, a sort of a, a a country take the lead in this because of the global nature of the problem. I was going to say that's exactly the issue. Is, is these guys these major tech companies? can buy everything they need and, and even things they don't need just to stop technology from advancing. And I don't see how any of these um, 10 principles or what the EU is talking about is going to stop that massive expansion from the guys with the most money. It used to be you just needed the biggest community to dominate the space. And now they have both. They've got the most users and the most cash. And I'm, I'm unclear on how we're going to stop them from expanding into technologies by buying up every startup that rolls out of Stanford or MIT. 
Yeah, we've seen this when countries or even regions like the EU try and go after these companies for taxes. If they one country tries to increase taxes on a company, they just threaten to move their operations or facilities elsewhere. Do we need buy-in from these companies in order to make some kind of digital authority work, Linda? Or is it possible to simply impose rules on these massive multinational companies? Well, it's a, taxation's a difficult one, and the EU seems to be... Um leading the conversation in that again, saying we need equal taxation globally for these companies because we're not creating a level playing field here. Uh, the companies with the wherewithal are able to dodge the taxes and the smaller companies without the ability to do that are paying more and therefore losing employees and losing out on opportunities. So taxation is is a big problem. And, I, and again, I don't understand how that becomes a global thing since that is very much uh, controlled by uh, nation states, yeah. European Union, North America, et cetera. Yeah, that, that's a very difficult question, but it does need to be addressed. I Absolutely. think that's what I think that's what makes this problem so tricky and difficult. Is you're going to have competing interests? You know, are mm-hmm. we? Is it what is the driver of of this digital authority? Is it taxes? Is it uh, is it going to become a is it going to become a revenue center for these for these countries, or is it public interest? And those are very different. Uh, competing priorities, and uh, and it'll be interesting to see what comes to the forefront. Yeah, I agree. I'm sure we'll continue to talk about this issue for years and years to come. Interestingly, at South by Southwest, which is underway this week, there were reports that some participants were shouting, break them up around panels that had to do with competition and antitrust. We've talked about that. Uh, But I bring up South by Southwest because Walmart has a presence there this year, and they're billing themselves as a tech company. Ali, is Walmart a tech company? Could they be a tech company? I yes, they are absolutely a tech company. They they have a significant online presence, and any company with an online presence has is a tech as as tech components to it. I mean, they they probably have an army of uh, technology uh, people that uh, are are who have a mandate to imp- you know improve the company's online uh, presence and viability. And in, in in the case of Walmart, they've actually been quite successful in the last sort of two three years. I, I think, you know they're either the number two or number three uh, online shopping website on the planet. Planet. And so that's uh, that's significant volume. And uh, uh, so, yes, 100% there, I, I would consider them a tech company. They've done really well. Linda, we often talk about Walmart and Amazon in the same breath. How well is Walmart faring against kind of the, the king of the space, or at least has been the king of the space here in North America, Amazon? Well, it used to be that we, we said there's no way Walmart will become a tech company um, that's going to be too tough for them to transition. I'm not sure they're a tech company yet. They're not creating any new tech. They're just repurposing tech that Google and Microsoft and um, other companies are are selling and partnering with them um, to to um, customize for their own use. So I don't put them in the tech company, tech development space, but as a massive user of tech, absolutely. Can they? They're throwing out technologies for their customers to use. But it used to be that their retail stores were their big Achilles heel, and now it seems like their retail stores are the opposite. They're actually their their foray into the market. And Amazon announcing they're going to open up a chain of low-cost uh, grocery retail stores uh, a la Walmart stores. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I think that um, Amazon versus Walmart is no, no longer clearly defined by the borders of technology and retail because those lines are now pretty clearly blurred um, and will continue to blur as we use these retail 
stores as distribution warehouses for the online platforms. They are both creating well and Walmart doing an excellent job, I think better than Amazon, at creating an opportunity to finally buy groceries online. Amazon still hasn't figured that out here. So it does it does look and feel like retail is going to survive. I mean, I know that probably years ago we thought it was not going to. Uh, but it does look and feel like now a lot of these tech companies uh, are seeing seeing positive unit economics coming out of these stores, or they're at least making them work in a way where, and perhaps they're they're looking at these customers from a lifetime value standpoint, which is the the right way to look at them. You know, uh, it's possible that on an overall basis, when you're looking at the decision to uh, to have a retail store presence. You're not uh, really depending on how you look at that math. If if it if you can uh, prove out the theory that that consumer is going to not only come into your store but then go online and maybe shop online uh, and make a, a number of purchases online, then you suddenly you have a different math equation. You can start looking at that customer from a lifetime value standpoint, and perhaps uh, that is what the tech companies are getting wind of: is that it makes sense to go and make these investments in storefronts. Uh, because they're convincing themselves that, and Tesla is probably the best example. We can mm-hmm. go back to Tesla, right? People are going into the stores, they're they're looking at these cars, and then they're probably going online and buying them. So, uh, not surprised that uh, retail uh, is uh, making a comeback, and probably for these reasons, will survive the long term. A more strategic comeback exactly. for very specific reasons. Well thought out. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ali, Linda, as always, thank you both for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. That's Linda Falkus, founder and CEO of Glue Technology Society, joining us on the line, and Ali Pordad, CEO of Progressa here in studio. That's it for our show today. Thanks for listening to BIV Today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes or on Stitcher. You can also listen to past episodes over at BIV.com slash audio. And of course, if you're looking for the latest business news, you can visit our website, BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening. 